So welcome to this week's edition of the Retail Risk Podcast, sponsored by Alltag, and thanks as always to our supporting partner, Aura. Now, my guest this week is Martin Sweeney. Martin is the CEO at Ravelin. Now, Martin started his tech career with taxi app Halo as a founding engineer, and while there, he worked on a project to predict which orders were likely to be fraudulent. Now, finding nothing suitable on the market to solve this problem, or at least with the speed and accuracy that he and his team wanted, uh, Sweeney and some of his colleagues decided to build their own platform. We like that uh, process. And so Ravelin was born. Now, since the startup was founded in 2014, it's raised more than £30 million from investors and helped it grow into the multi-million pound business we see today working for e-commerce titans Deliveroo, Just Eat, Spotify and Booking.com among others. Now Martin's background is in software and physics and a master's degree in physics from Leeds as well. Now when not working he spends time with his four children, a keen fisherman, cricketer, got a lot of time for that one, and rock climber, uh, not in my repertoire. <laughs> Martin welcome. Pleasure to be here, thank you. Um, great that you can uh, to take the time to join me. Now, before we get going, um, and hard as it is to believe, there are probably one or two people that do not know anything about your business. So kick off and tell me what it is you do. So Ravelin is a British company that helps growing online merchants grow even faster and more securely. And we help with lots of different problems, but primarily fraud and revenue abuse that originates with consumers. So that might be payment fraud, it might be refund or returns abuse, it might even be things like account takeover. Um, we go through the whole spectrum, that sort of end-to-end -end customer journey, uh, and we're there helping the merchants uh, with their very particular problems. So we have a, a, a strong focus in the sector of food delivery and um, sort of real-time high-margin businesses. We also do increasing amounts of retail and physical e-commerce, uh, as well as digital goods. Uh, so kind of full spectrum and lots of different types of problems. Generally speaking, we work with the bigger merchants online who tend to have the bigger problems. Um, but we also work through different payment gateways and other partners in the industry. Um, so there's a lot we do, and I'm very pleased to, have to talk about it with you today. Yeah, it's interesting. You, um, I noticed as you sort of run through some of your biggest clients there, these are people that need really quick decisions, don't they? That's right. I mean, the, the, the entire business of e-commerce these days is about capturing the limited attention spans of the consumer. So you can't really interfere with that. Uh, checkout process. It's got to be super smooth. You spent all that money on marketing, building a great business and a great app or website. Uh, and then you've persuaded somebody to click buy now. And so you really don't want to get in the way at that point. You know, it's absolutely vital that everything works quickly. And so what we do is we make a decision exactly at the buy now stage. So we decide in about 100 milliseconds. So that's 0.1 seconds. Uh, what you should do. So should you accept that transaction, let it go through? Should you decline it because it's really high risk? Or should you do something else? Should you authenticate? Should you step up in some other way? And and there's a few different points of interaction. So if you are lucky enough to have that sort of account-based model where your customers sign in and reuse your service regularly, lots of lifetime value, we can score them at multiple points. Or if you're a sort of guest checkout heavy merchant with people that just drop in from your organic or paid search, then we're able to score those people completely blind as well. So there's many different touch points, but it all revolves around that consumer. And and yeah, fascinating. I mean, you know, I remember, you know, years ago, there used to be sort of banks of people mm -hmm. frantically approving or declining. And I assume uh, there's the, uh, the the hamsters are completely automated in the uh, in the Ravelin world at the minute. That's right. Not many hamsters at Ravelin. We, you know, we, we're full of respect for teams that have historically 
done things by hand and many of our customers still have teams of analysts it's really important to say we're not here to replace people it's just that generally speaking those analysts are doing more interesting work and so instead of just going through cases you know, hundreds of of order reviews a day and you know between us those decisions were often not very good because that people are so bored just clicking the button yes or no uh, we we give those people tools to go away and do uh, intelligent analysis. And so we leave the automation to the machines to do the vast, vast majority of automated decisioning, um, which takes into account our view of risk and your view as a retailer or a merchant, because it's your business. You know, you understand it better than anyone else. You've got your own policies you'd like to implement. You've got your own preferences. You've got your own expertise. And so we provide that really nice hybrid of um, the machine learning intelligence, which we bring, and the tool for you and your your sort of power users, if you have them, to uh, to sort of go mad, and we we like to bring that that hybrid market model. And and, and I have to say, you know, before you know, change the subject slide. Before you and I started to speak, I went online as I do with many guests, and I sort of googled you. And there's lots of very fabulous things out there. But um, I'm really interested in your background a little bit. Um, I heard you described as a problem solving rocket scientist, which I thought was really interesting. And it's a few people have quoted that. Is that fair? Is that how you describe no, it? I, that's very um, that's very favourable, I think. Um, <laughs> I, I used to work in the defence industry and I used to work in a rockety bit, but I was just a grad student. I worked with some very smart people, but they are much smarter than me. But I'm a proper nerd, Paul. I, I like building things. That's the real thing. So I love building products that people use. I used to play around with rockets myself, which I think is where that, that sort of tag came from. But what I really get my kick from is building something that solves a problem. And so we, we do this every day at, at Ravelin. You know, we go and work with our customers. They tell us what's happening and everybody's a bit different. You know, this is not a off the shelf shrink wrapped bit of software you plug in and it just does what it's told. You know, this is about a company that's here to work with you and solve your complex problems. So, yes, we can do the basic payment fraud, account takeover, all that sort of stuff. We'll solve your refund and returns problem. But in a couple of weeks' time, you'll turn around and say, you know, Ravelin, you've done a brilliant job. Thanks very much. We've got this other problem over here. Can you help us? And we like to say yes. That's the, and I think that comes back to the to the roots of the founders and the company. We really like solving problems, and we really like helping merchants. That's our background. That's our DNA. You know, we're not just a sort of tech company with a hammer looking for problems to hit using something machine learning and AI. This is really about building a tool to help online merchants thrive you know we're creating winners our clients are the ones who win online by delivering that perfect customer experience and balancing risk it's not about just stopping all fraud it's not about letting everything through and just wearing the the liability that comes with it it's about striking that balance and also many of our customers are are those expanding and operating internationally you know it's not just about uh, one domestic company it's domestic market this is in many cases a small team of experts managing tens of different geographies with huge different changes in methodologies for fraud and different problems in different areas and so we're giving people these superpowers really by sort of turbocharging it. so just to come back to your original question it's all problem solving and there is a little bit of rocket science in there but generally that's other smarter people than me i love the fact that when you were tagged with the moniker of a, of a rocket scientist you've actually been there and done that bit as well opposed to just somebody scooping it up and giving you the uh, the, the, the post-it note tag. So, uh, yeah, very impressive on that front. So, look, I'm really interested, you know, talk to me about the journey to today, you know, when the business first started. Was it really as simple as, if you like, my introduction suggested was that you couldn't find what you were looking for? So yeah. you went and well, it, it, it was, it on a yes. Saturday so afternoon? 
we we sort of built it um and it ran on a laptop and you know when the laptop was closed there was no fraud system and when it was open it, there was so it, it was a bit rusty and rough and ready um and what we hit on was that we were at this sort of cusp this inflection point of uh, and this was in about 2010 when we were doing this uh, in, in my previous company we were in, in some ways the vanguard the, the bleeding edge of people doing things on mobile that involve payments and involve checkouts now before then most e-commerce happened on the desktop in a browser and it was generally sort of you know groceries e-commerce travel those sort of big ticket items and the user experience was pretty painful you know you have 25 form fields to enter and three stages in your checkout and a, a clunky website that takes 10 minutes to to finish the checkout experience and we sort of thought well that's nice but you can't really you can't really do that on an app can you you can't book a cab and so we were we were really pioneering this this conversion-led high volume low margin business and so in the taxi app world you'll know you know you tip out out of a theater or out of work one day and you you know you want to get across town to the train station pull up the app one tap taxi appears two minutes later uh you jump out the other end your card is charged automatically it's all about convenience all about speed and when we had a fraud problem uh you know we we said surely this is a solved problem that the e-commerce has been around for some time now it's 2010 um, and we went to the market and, and saw some other products that were there, and they're all sort of venerable enterprise products with you know grey interfaces that look like Windows 2000. And we thought, great, well we'll just bolt that on and it'll do the trick. But they were built for another era. You know, they were built for e-commerce on the desktop. Who cares about conversion? And they were built for lots of manual teams who, with people who love to set all the rules that they could think of to solve a problem. But it meant that they were very very expensive to maintain, uh, and they relied on these expensive teams to run them and they were very fragile so whenever the fraudsters changed up their methodology which obviously they do all the time because they have a huge incentive to change and it's sort of david david and goliath right they're nimble and fleet-footed whereas the big enterprise tool is a bit clunky and slow uh, they were always on the back foot and so we because we're nerds basically said this is basically a huge opportunity to use statistics that became machine learning and now it's called artificial intelligence all sort of the same thing, which is fundamentally, if you're able to look at the patterns of behavior to see what people are buying, how they're behaving, who they say they are, how they interact with your service, you can use that data to make really accurate decisions about who's good and who's not so good. And most people are very, very routine based and most people are good. Those are the kind of two principles of our industry. The vast majority of people are completely innocent. They just want to go about their business. And it's our job to let them. But there are bad actors out there and they can cost you a huge amount of money. So if you go after them with a vengeance and you know, try and catch the bad guys at all costs, then really you throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, you're willing to jeopardize the experience of your vast majority of good customers just to pursue the handful of bad guys. And so we saw this as a great opportunity to use data, use statistics, and to think about the customer experience first and foremost. And I think it's that sort of merchant attitude that we brought to this industry and our customers now love because we get them. You know, we understand their day-to-day -day lives and the problems they solve and you know, what it takes to push a project like this over the line. And once it's up and running, what the day-to-day -day concerns are and how we run this process together. So it's been a great journey and I'm looking forward to where we go next. Yeah, exciting uh, times. And you're quite right, you know, that that transition, you know, there was even conversations, you know, I've been around this industry for a while, you know, about it wouldn't be possible to, uh, you know, carry out 
sort of far-reaching e-commerce transactions on a mobile phone because there wasn't all of the interaction. People are like, oh, no, no, no. And I guess that was the people from the, the previous era who couldn't quite make their technology work in a mobile app. So you need the next wave of rocket scientists to come along. So well done you for being on that wave. Well, it's certainly an industry that enjoys a lot of innovation. And, and I think it really is one that rewards it. And the the winners in this industry can go and go. I'm I'm hugely bullish on, on e-commerce in general. I think, you know, we're tracking, if you look at the adoption rates and even through the pandemic, the sort of boom and then slight uh, opposite of boom on the other side. I think there's more to go. I think there's more innovation coming. It really won't look like it does today, but the winners will have the same characteristics, which is that they have customer focus and they have a balance of expertise and they have resources to deploy and they're very good at, at, uh, at balancing that equation. Oh, I mean, it's even reached the point where, you know, if, if my children want to make a purchase online, if the e-commerce experience looks clunky, they're aware that mum and dad might roll their eyes and they're less likely to get the go ahead. So they're already selecting, oh, can we get this? Can we get that? Knowing, you know, we've shot there before. It's going to autofill details. It'll turn up tomorrow. So, yeah, that's what people are looking for. Now, um, you guys published some really interesting research recently around e-commerce consumer fraud and there's a few little bits in there that 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 caught my eye but talk to me about that i mean what what prompted the research you know and what sort of key findings was there anything in there that surprised you yeah well i think what prompted it is that you know, in our world the most egregious black and white fraud is when you steal someone's credit card uh, and, you, and then you use it to buy goods and services and the merchant gets a charge back you know that's that's obvious, right? It's pure, straight-up fraud. It's criminality. But many merchants will have experienced over the last few years in particular a huge rise in more of the sort of grey area fraud. It's it's abuse. It's still, I would char characterise it as fraud and criminal behaviour, but it is more socially acceptable, shall we say. You know, you and I and our friends would never go and steal a credit card and, and use it to buy goods or services online, but you might commit what could be considered first-party fraud, you know, returns abuse is very common it's also sort of it's it's filtered into the mainstream consciousness of what's called wardrobing in the industry you know you you buy something on a, a big online retailer you wear it to the party the next day you put it back in the post and you get your money back so this is something that has been around for a long time it's in the general consciousness of society and over the last few years there's been a huge boom in it and returns and refund abuse has been one of those big growth areas that we've seen losses attributed to refund abuse spike. We've seen uh, time spent in merchants and operations and expense overheads uh, peak. We've seen um, democratization of the types of techniques that are out there. So if all you need to do is you know, quick search on the internet, on your social media app of choice, you can find within two seconds how-to guides, how to get away with it even targeting specific merchants or retailers with literal step-by-step instructions. So this industry has sort of blown the doors wide open because people wouldn't be doing that for credit card fraud, but they definitely would be doing it for returns abuse. And, you know, some of our retailers lose 10 times the money than they do with card fraud to abuse. So what we really wanted to do, the motivation for this research is to sort of dig into the underlying motivations. You know, we, we can sit here as for all people as merchants and so isn't it terrible this is happening but i really want to understand why it's happening and who is it that's perpetrating it and what are their motivations and what are they trying to do so that's why we we did this survey uh we we surveyed 
over 6,000 people. We focused on three core markets. Uh, we've aspirations to go even further, but we started with the UK, Germany, and France, uh, all of which are sort of strong in the refund abuse uh, industry. So we, we decided to start there. And there really wasn't anything else in the industry. We looked around, there was no other survey out there. So what we wanted to do is to, to shine a light on this problem, costing merchants a lot of money. Uh, and what we found was something really interesting. So first of all, sort of headline numbers, around 40% of online shoppers have done it. Wow. And another 30, 30 to 40% are considering it. So it's huge. People are out there. They're, they're, they're on the lookout and they, they're open to the idea that this is something they might do. Now, there's there's obviously a spectrum in here. You might not wear something in return. And that feels quite uh, unacceptable these days, I would say. But maybe vouchers and that sort of thing. Sort of dip your toe in the water. Um, maybe if there's a an offer to get free delivery over £100, you might add a few items to your basket to tip you over and then return those ones that you didn't actually want, but you just wanted to avoid the, the shipping fees. Maybe there's a sort of first time user policy, which gets you a discount or some other preferential treatment. And so you, you use instead of your personal email address, you use your work address or something else that allows you to slip under the radar of the system and maybe circumvent the spirit of the policy, if not the absolute letter. And so it's those sort of uh, gateway drugs into refund abuse and policy abuse that we're seeing uh, and it's paying off so many people uh, say it's it's they've they've gamed the system to the tune of around 500 pounds or euros each in the last year and uh, that's that's about 13 percent of the respondents in the survey and then another um, you know 29 percent or so 30 percent have gained 100 euros. So sort of easy pickings for people. Most people who try it get something fairly easily. And that's money that's left on the floor by the merchants. And, and I think that really is the tip of the iceberg for, for how much deeper this goes. Well, I mean, I'm blown away by those, you know, those those figures. You know, if you sort of uh, sat me down and, and got me to pluck numbers out, I'd have, uh, I'd have been taking zeros off those or thinking it much, much lower. So, you know, massive, massive problem. And I assume as a retailer then, yeah, if it's the fast fashion returning after a, a night out, it's going to be the twenty somethings, the tech savvy shoppers that's going to be causing my biggest biggest losses. Is is that stereotype holding true? I thought it might be, and I was very surprised to be wrong about that. So if we look at the respondents to our survey, forty uh, percent of the respondents were in the over forty fives age group. Right. So, so if you break it down, uh, 20% are in 30 to 34, uh, 35 to 45, 23% in 25. So actually the, the biggest concentration of people are in the over 45 year olds group, which is fascinating, isn't it? Because they're, they're not traditionally who you would think of being your cyber criminals uh, sat at home looking for a discount code. But it's also worth noting that it's generally speaking, not evenly distributed. Right. It's the big brand retailers, the enterprises who are. The most likely targets you know they're seen as being a sort of uh you know they can afford it they're big they're the high street brands that, and those are the people that, that are targeted explicitly and somewhat obviously or reassuringly perhaps generally speaking independent stores or small shops are not targeted i think there's a sort of modicum of social con conscience in the the uh, community here and i think that speaks to the the wider point I, i've made earlier which is that you wouldn't go out there and commit credit for card fraud but you might abuse a policy, but you probably wouldn't abuse a policy for a small independent store, but you certainly would for the enterprise merchants, those people who are in the, the obvious target category. So yes, um, 
it's not just the tech savvy consumers, it's everybody. And I think that really is because it's been democratized. So I suspect the 45 plus group is on Facebook a lot. Facebook is a huge source of these these uh, how-to guides, very easy to share, you know, your recent success. Oh, I just created a new account on this merchant and I got this discount or I was able to return my pair of shoes after wearing them and this merchant let me. So it's it's that ease of intelligence sharing and acquisition that I think social media has facilitated and social media in the over 45s is a, a huge and popular uh, thing. So that was very surprising to me. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, does that, does... <laughs> Does that make it easier or harder to, you know, I guess if you know that it's not coming from where you think it's coming from, you can kind of define policies for that. But how on earth do you, I mean, is it about writing, you know, closing the gaps in the promotions and the policy? Is it being aware of what's going on? I guess once you know about it, you can start to look for it and do something about it. But it sounds almost, you know, I hate to say it, but impossible your gap to close well it's not impossible thankfully that's why we're here um the first thing is that you need to really be on top of your data so one of the things we've noticed in the merchant community is that people know it's happening but they don't know how big it is they can't quantify it and unless you can measure it you you can't manage it so step one is getting your data in order and it depends which um which systems you're using where your data is held but really it's worth putting in the legwork to make sure you've got the numbers at your disposal Secondly, I think policies and processes are often um, the last thought when something is announced. So the marketing team might come up with something, great new promotion, uh, quickly throw it over the wall, uh, the exciting advert, uh, social media campaign, but maybe the ops team, customer service haven't really been brought along with it. So I think there's an organizational alignment project that needs to happen in many organizations to make sure that everyone's ready for this new thing that's going to happen. Because if you're not, those gaps will be quickly noticed and exploited. So it's about that organizational view to say, it's not just marketing, it's not just sales, it's everybody in the organization who's gonna to have to deliver this initiative. So once you've done that, you need to review them regularly. So your policies might have holes in them because it was last updated two and a half years ago and the world's moved on. And so make sure they're up to date. And then lastly, you need to have a partner like Ravelin in the system ready to be able to react to the changes. and. Paul, this is not like credit card rule. We're not trying to stop people from, from checking out. We're not trying to shut down all these old, over 45-year-olds who are <laughs> looking to sort of get an edge. No, no, we're making sure that they can still buy because they're interested in, in your products. They've come to your website. They're just looking to maybe get some money off. So what you're trying to do is to discourage by making it harder. That's the key thing. So we're very good at understanding the underlying data. So we know when someone creates a new account, that it's likely to be linked to this other account. So we link things together. We then, at a customer profile point of view uh, level, we can we can give you a view and write policies, processes, and rules that apply your policies across that whole customer's history. So we can say, you know, Martin is a unprofitable customer because he has, over the last two years, placed 15 orders and he's returned 13 of them. So he's got a retention rate of, let's say, 7% across his customer base. And the the overall cost of this customer is negative. Whereas Paul, what a good guy. You know, he's he's been a customer for not as long. Yes, he's only got seven months tenure, but every single order he keeps 
uh, apart from the occasional one for good reasons, he returns them. So we're going to automate our returns policy for Paul. So next time he comes along and he's accidentally ordered the wrong size shirt, we'll automatically refund that for him. So Paul gets a great experience, right? Paul is one of the good guys. He gets to benefit from his good history. But Martin might have to jump through a few more hoops. So next time he comes along and he applies for a refund, we're going to put a bit more friction in there. We might charge him for that refund. We might not automate it and make him call up to speak to somebody because that's a higher barrier to jump over. And so it's about adding friction intelligently. But you can only do that if you've got the underlying data that says Martin is unprofitable, Paul is profitable, and have the ability to route your users down those different journeys. And it, it might sound daunting, but trust me, it's not. It all starts with having good data, the right policies, and the right partner who can help you apply them. And the bit that jumped out to me there at the start from all my years in retail is, you know, your policies might have been two years old. I mean, I, you know, when I started out, you know, many, many years ago on my graduate intake program, you know, if the policy had been rewritten in the last 10 years, it was considered bang up to date, let alone last uh, last two years. So so we've got a whole host of, of top tips there. We've got some processes. Uh, and clearly, number one is to probably connect with you on LinkedIn and then talk about becoming a client, I guess, is uh, is, is what you're going to say. But it, it does sound as if, you know, you know, this 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 understanding where all of those smaller bits of fraud and losses are coming from collectively adds up to a huge chunk of change that that should be staying on the on the retailer and the merchant side. We'd love to talk. Uh, you know, we're not going to give anyone the hard sell for um for what we do, but we are experts in the field. And... Oh, it's gone again, Martin. Okay, it's just we've lost the sound. All right, there you go. I think you're back. Very confusing. Okay. Well, I'll try again. Right. Okay. Um, what was your question? Uh, yeah, so it's uh, we are we want to, we're happy to talk. We are experts in the yes, field. Okay. Um, all right. So yes, we'd love to talk. Uh, we're not going to give anyone the hard sell, but you know we really are very good at what we do. I think there's a couple of benefits to merchants. Firstly, you can join the network. So we've got a lot of data, and we help everybody collectively learn from what's happening out there. So you can join the community, um, and you you do benefit from that. Um, you benefit not only from the raw data and our underlying intelligence, but also the community. So we have a uh, for example, we run an annual conference. It's in London. Uh, we have merchants from all over the, the spectrum, different industries, different geographies come together and we share our learnings on, on what we're doing and what other people are doing and how they're applying different policies. Not all customers and it's not and not a sales event, but RavCon in 2024, uh, we'd love to have you there. So that's definitely a big call to action. Come and talk to us, learn from us, even if you are... Um, doing something completely different or experiencing a problem we've never seen before. That's what we want to hear because this industry is never standing still and we can all learn from one another. And then finally, other than attending uh, RavCon and making it bigger and better, what's on the horizon for uh, for you guys in 2024? What, what's, what's coming uh, down the road? What's new and big? Well, I think the, the world of fraud is a fascinating one because merchants always at the cutting edge of the types of... Uh, the types of fraud that are being innovated in the market. So one thing we see a lot of is what I would call limited inventory abuse. So let's say you run 
a, a, a trainers or sneaker website and you get drops of trainers, limited editions. People are out there trying to buy them before the real consumers who just want to buy their pair of sneakers. So we work with limited inventory merchants. And there's a lot of real interesting stuff happening out there. Um, account takeover is a big problem. It's not necessarily merchants fault because it's people using the same password on many different websites. And then surprise, the, their accounts are compromised when that password gets leaked. And so helping merchants with account takeover, tying that into the checkout. So really interesting projects at Ravelin about how you can identify unusual activity on the account from what people are buying. So based on the historical profile, this is what they normally buy in this uh, time zone, this time of day, day of the week, this category of transaction, uh, and then suddenly something way out of whack comes along. Uh, it's a different time of day, different geography, different profile, and using that data really intelligently to stop an account takeover, not just at login or account creation, but also at the checkout. Uh, so there's there's always advances in fraud, and we've always got new products out there, but we'd love to come and talk to you about how your business works and which problems you're seeing. Sounds like everybody needs an in-house rocket scientist uh, on speed dial. Uh, Martin, absolutely fascinating. Uh, I do feel as if we could have gone for a three-hour podcast there with the uh, with the knowledge and information you've got. But uh, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Wish you all of the uh, best of luck uh, into 2024. Uh, but for now, thank you very much indeed. A pleasure. Thank you, Paul.